Hello, faithful listeners. This is Pastor John Clowder from Faith Lutheran Church here in Forest Lake, and we are so glad that you are listening online to our online podcast. Welcome you to worship anytime on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 10.30, and thanks for being here. Thanks for participating in worship with us as we look forward to the week ahead. A reading from Philippians. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. A Gospel reading from the 13th chapter of Luke. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Grace and peace to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So on Tuesday morning, as we gathered at Keys for our Old Guys Bible study, this particular reading from Luke's Gospel struck a whole bunch of chords. And we had a deeply engaged conversation that, I kid you not, ranged from Vladimir Putin to the cause of oil prices to U.S. foreign policy and even the economics behind the Major League Baseball work stoppage, which I don't think I had anything to do with that part of the conversation, but if I chimed in a little bit, I'm sure I had a few things to say. All of those threads, however, were provoked because of this reading that we just heard in Luke's Gospel. And what's more is by the time that hour had come to an end, all of us who had gathered there walked out of the back room at Keys and for the most part, still had smiles on our faces and our friendships were still intact. In a group that is uh, a balanced mix of liberals and conservatives, it's not like we were singing Kumbaya by the end, but, you know, jokingly, I told everyone, I was like, look, I, I ended the session with this conclusion. Guys, what I'm hearing from you is this. The only sermon that I can preach on Sunday is, Herod bad, Jesus good, amen. And they all agreed. So if you want to go... I guess that's the end. But if you want to hear a little bit more about what happened kind of in between, I think we got a little bit to work with because there's a whole lot going on in this story. And what Russia is currently doing to Ukraine was certainly on all of our minds. 
And I think it was inevitable that we were going to connect the dots between Herod's intentions of destruction and also Vladimir Putin's atrocities. I was reading an article in Christianity Today this past week, and their headline was, Go ahead, pray for Putin's demise. And I'm like thinking, wow, this is just some, some clickbait. But I opened it, and I read it, and I was like, actually, there was some substance to what the author had to say. And it wasn't just some internet troll. It was actually an Anglican priest. And so uh, Tish Harrison Warren had a very thoughtful uh, way of looking at this. She said, look, you know, we, we aren't, when we're praying right now, sometimes we can actually pl- pray for other people's evil to ricochet back on themselves. I thought, wow, what a, what a vivid image that that conveys. She said, look, we're not praying that violence will beget more violence or that evil will start this cycle of vengeance or retaliation, but what we can pray for is that people would be destroyed by their own schemes. She said, I still pray daily and earnestly that Putin will repent. I pray that the Russian soldiers could lay down their arms and defy their leaders. This is a moment when I'm trusting in God's mercy, but I'm also trusting in God's righteousness and loving and protective rage. Wow, what a vivid way to think about how our prayers could be lifted up. Uh, I couldn't help but make the connection to uh, other images that we've had throughout the time and history of German Lutheran uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was part of a uh, scheme to try to take out Hitler during World War II and was killed for it. I couldn't help but think about Saddam Hussein when, when he was overthrown or how we felt when Osama bin Laden was killed. And I thought about this, this question really kind of gnawed at me all week. And I was like, well, shoot, how, how does our theology embrace our humanity? Is that a godly response to actually feel that way? I realize that we're in, a, we're in the middle of a historic moment that's playing out right in front of our eyes. That our theology can actually inspire us. That our hope is one where good will overcome evil. And so we have to believe that good is, uh, is present, that God is present then in that hope. But the gospel is never really that simple, is it? Okay, so for example, what do we do with Herod? What do we do with Herod in a story like this? And, and he's, he's just a bad guy. Like he's, There's nothing redeemable about him. Can't we just throw him on the bad pile and just say, let's get rid of Herod? Like, uh, but here's the thing. I think our, our thoughts on Herod are kind of like a teenager's relationship status on social media. It's complicated. You see, Herod isn't directly involved in this story. You know, it's his reputation that's part of the story. You know, you look at this. It's not like Herod is physically there. It's this reputation of what will Herod do, okay? So at that very hour, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And how you read that sentence is going to dictate what you think of the Pharisees. Is it like a, hey, we're, we're trying to warn you, get out of here. Or is it like, you get out of here, Jesus. Herod's going to come and get you, and if he doesn't, we will. Notice there's two very different tactics that could be used depending on how you're looking at it. And thinking about the detective work that was happening in the children's message, you know, Jesus isn't in Jerusalem yet. He's close, but who is in Jerusalem? This guy, Herod is. That's where the Pharisees are, are like, they know that if you go anywhere near Jerusalem, Jesus, you're going to get killed. And so the arrival of the Pharisees comes with a warning. Jesus, you're getting too close. Back off because you keep poking the bear. Or more accurately, in this case, as Jesus calls him, the fox. All right? I love that expression. You know, oh, 
Herod, you fox. So Rob Bell, who, who wrote this book, What is the Bible? And we're going to have a book study on this on March 25th, if you want to dig into this a little bit further. But Rob Bell has a great excerpt in his book where he talks about this passage. He says, look, in ancient Jewish culture, if you talked about how great and significant somebody was, you would describe them as a lion. Think about that, like the king. You, you'd think about that as, as a very positive way of describing someone. However, if someone was a liar, a fake, a phony, an imposter, maybe a poser, you would actually call them a fox. So for someone who's the king, who should be known as the lion, Jesus calling Herod the fox was actually the biggest slam that he could have made. So why do the Pharisees even bother? I, I, I mean, I keep coming back to this question of why are the Pharisees saying anything to Jesus? Don't they want Jesus dead? I mean, we know how the story ends. We know where the Pharisees play a part in that. So aren't the Pharisees the bad guys? Aren't they the same team as Herod? And I, I kept coming back to the fact that saying that all of the Pharisees are, are aligned with Herod would be like saying every single Russian, every single working class Russian living in Moscow who's been choked off by these worldwide sanctions would be on the same team as Putin. I don't think we want to be uh, labeled with the same brush as all of our neighbors. And I think that in Russia, it's, it's really complicated. And it's, is it truly humane to paint all Russians with that same brush? And so I have a hunch that what's going on behind the scenes with the, the Pharisees is that when Jesus is telling them to go and tell that fox, it's actually a message he needs those Pharisees to hear. The ones who might be thinking, wow, we know where our own benefits could lie and we're craving some power. Or anybody honestly, who is willing to oppress others. He wants them to hear that message. Because if they're trying to discourage Jesus from going to Jerusalem, he wants them to know to get ready. Because he's coming. And then he explains his mission statement. What does he do next? Well, I got to go cast out demons, I got to cure people, and I got to finish work on the third day. Not like that's foreshadowing for anything. And he says, and then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. This is a lion move. Jesus is acting like the lion, but they definitely don't see it that way. Instead, what do they end up doing? Jesus ends up getting slaughtered like the lamb. Okay, so here, let's, let's frame this in where the Pharisees fit in this story, because I, I think it's so easy to just easily throw a label on them. Often, the Pharisees are juxtaposed against Jesus and his work. And so it's worth noting that just two chapters before this, the Pharisees were the bad guys. You know, it's like, blessed are you, blessed are you, all of my followers who are with me who've been persecuted. <laughs> but Pharisees, woe are you. Do you think that didn't sink in and make these Pharisees resent Jesus a little bit? I bet it did. Because on the one hand, when they're suggesting to Jesus that Herod desires to kill him, their claim could have been read as propaganda to scare Jesus out of town. You want to pick on us, Jesus? Well, hey, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Or, on the other hand, Jesus might be getting warned because Luke has previously demonstrated that Herod has no problem imprisoning and executing prophets, just like John the Baptist. So, we have to realize that the Pharisees could very well be telling the truth and telling that truth in order to try to protect Jesus. So, why on earth are these Pharisees willing to do that? You know, if, if they've already been slammed, if they've already kind of met some resistance from Jesus, what on earth do the Pharisees have to gain from this? Why are they trying to shield him? Like, is it possible? Just let's think about it. Is it at all possible that not all Pharisees are evil? And that sometimes those labels just don't work. Because 
I don't know about you, but it is so much easier if it can just be obvious what is good and what is bad. If we could just say, yep, this is good, this is evil, this is black, this is white. But life is very rarely that way, is it? There's often a whole lot of gray in the middle. And so where do we put the Pharisees? Where do they land in this? Are they right smack in the center? I think so often we just want to obviously push them over to Herod's side. But when they keep swinging back and forth, it really messes with us. It makes us really question, like, well, what on earth is going on here? Why can't the Pharisees just pick a side? So we have Jesus. And Jesus is on the side of good, the one who's prophetically speaking against power. His actions will have consequences. We know how this story will end for him. That balance of power is going to continue to shift back and forth. But it's, it's Herod who, who thinks that he has the power. Yet Jesus has another thing coming for him. And, and here's the thing about Herod. Herod's actions have consequences too. We don't ever really talk about what happens to Herod after the whole death and resurrection thing. But there's some stuff that happens in his life where all of his actions, they'll start to catch up with him. You think about his leadership style of threatening and intimidating others. You know, inevitably that's going to lead to his downfall. You know, his hold on, on power is tenuous at best, right? He's not this all-encompassing ruler who has power over everyone. You know, he's made some bad choices, some bad alignments. He's made some, some choices that are going to come back and, and catch up with him. So I think one of the big things that really jumps out that the scripture teaches us is that one of the choices he makes that's going to uh, really make things difficult for him is when he decides to steal his brother's wife. And so he ends up marrying Herodias, and this kind of leads to this path where bad choices beget bad choices, and that path continues to lead to places that's going to end up bad for him. So Herodias is the one who ends up tricking Herod and, and saying, hey, Herod, this John the Baptist who you've imprisoned, she tricks him into killing him. I think she's afraid that John the Baptist is getting too close to Herod and making him start to recognize that his decision to marry her wasn't a good one. And so all of a sudden she realizes in order to win that power back, in order to keep that, that fame and that prestige and, and have all that power, she's got she's to act. And so Herod, a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after all of these manipulations and deceptions and posing catches up to him, he ends up being on the other side of these tricks. And this time it's his nephew, Agrippa. Agrippa is, the, you know, is befriended by uh, Herodias. And Herodias is like, you know what? We should really help out Agrippa. He's your nephew. You should really take care of him. So, so Agrippa and Herod, they, they form kind of a, a loose alliance and they, they, they are banded together until they aren't, until they start to fight over money and power. And all of a sudden, Agrippa has to leave. But it just so happens that Agrippa has a friend. Agrippa has a friend named Caligula. And so as Agrippa is doing some deceitful things, he gets tossed into jail and Caligula eventually becomes emperor and says, look, you're my friend. I'm going I'm to free you from prison. And because I am aligned with you, I'm going to name you king. I'm going I'm to say you have some power. You get to, to be the king. Well, Herodias, of course, Herod's wife doesn't like that. She's like, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't fair. Herod, you're the bigger man. You're the lion. You should be the one who gets all that power. You need to go back to Emperor Caligula and tell him, I'm the king. But who has the emperor in his pocket? It's not Herod. It's Agrippa. So who does Agrippa come after when Herod goes to Caligula? It's not hard to see the writing on the wall. It's Uncle Herod. Agrippa sets him up. 
he convinces Emperor Caligula that not only does Herod want to come after his power, but he has enough weapons and troops that he could wipe him out. So Agrippa has now convinced Caligula that Herod's a threat, that Herod's going to launch this, this takeover, kind of like Putin trying to claim Ukraine. And Caligula strikes first. He removes Herod, takes him off of his throne, and all of a sudden, all of Herod's money, all of Herod's land, it's fair game. And who do you think is going to get that? Here's a hint. It's the person who has been behind this entire plot. It's Agrippa. Herod sent to exile, where he will die. And I can't help but think what goes around comes around. You think anybody's crying for King Herod? Any of those early followers of Jesus really sad to see the downfall of this leader, this fox, who eventually will take part in executing Jesus? I wonder, perhaps those followers of the way, the ones following Jesus, may have even been praying that Herod's evil would ricochet back on him. And then it did. Which is why this scripture is firmly put in front of our faces today. Because the reality is, being a Christian, it's hard. This is a mirror that we hold up to ourselves to show us the realities and the evils of this world often stretch humanity in ways that make things really difficult. I mean, we're constantly in a battle saying, oh, wow, good is so tempting, yet, you know, bad is even tastier. Sometimes those battles stretch us in ways that we just don't expect. We're trying to make sense of right and wrong, and we keep coming up short. We fail epically. We sometimes wonder, how could Jesus ever trust us? How could Jesus ever want us back on the good side ever again? I find myself in that gray area all the time. I know that I'm far from perfect. But thank God Jesus gets the last word. Because human sin dwells so deep within each and every one of our hearts. So we can ask ourselves the question, is God going to have anything to do with us? Sinners like you and me? And thank God the answer is yes. Because grace and sin, they they meet in Jerusalem. And what happened? Grace won. And so it may be also for us that our sinful nature, our sinfulness actually gets to meet the crucified prophet Jesus and grace wins again and again and again. And God says that grace is the final word. Not our sinfulness. Not our sinful hearts. This is the magnet that keeps pulling me back to Jesus. It's that, that form of repentance that keeps turning my head back to Jesus when I'm strained, when, when I find my humanity keeps coming up short. When I, keep, when I keep praying for the downfall of leaders like Putin because I hear about what he's done, about his dirty tactics, his, his awful war crimes, like, like bombing a maternity hospital. It, it's those innocent civilians that he's authorized to be slaughtered that make me wonder, wow, how, how God, Why? It's how I stumble to best love my neighbor as myself, even my enemy. How do I love my, na- my neighbor? How do I love that enemy when my enemy's doing this? It's how I struggle to understand how anyone could turn away from the love of God and ruthlessly attack their neighbor unprovoked. I know that I am a sinner in need of repentance, that I must humbly place myself before God and ask for forgiveness. Sing out, create in me, O God, a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within me. And one last reminder. Not all Pharisees are evil. 
Our snap judgments against entire groups or races of people can have devastating consequences. And so this is my reminder that when I judge others, God hasn't cast me aside, discarded me, thrown me away. All right. Old guys, were you right? Herod bad, Jesus good, amen. Yeah, well, you know, in many ways, humanity, we are sinners. We have fallen short. But it's complicated. And thank God that those sins aren't the last word. Because Jesus is good. Very, very good. And that grace of God is the grace that we need in this world, in this time, and in this place, in this moment. Amen. Well, that's it for this week's sermon. Thank you for joining us. Look for more information on faithfl.org or certainly reach out to the office if you would like to receive weekly email updates. Thank you.